Good morning. It's Monday, May 15th, 2023. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director and Chief Investments Officer here at Cantor Fitzgerald Investment Advisors. As a reminder, you can follow me intro week on Twitter at ETF underscore strategist or on the LinkedIn, just follow Herb Morgan. Everything you are about to see and or hear has been prepared by us, CFIA, for use with you, whether you are an investor or a financial advisor. Still, you are expected to make your own investment decisions. Nothing contained in the presentation is investment advice, should not be treated as such. There are no recommendations for the purchase or sale of any securities. The information contained herein is purely for informational purposes. No tax advice or any other advice is being given. Well, we had a modestly negative week, and if you were just looking at the S&P 500, it looked like we were about flat. But digging deeper, looking at mid and small cap stocks, they were down significantly, 1.66%, almost 1.7 for small cap. International markets were down anywhere from two-thirds of a percent to almost 1%. And bond markets were down just a tad, not much. I would almost call that unchanged. But as you look out longer on the maturity curve, that's the Barclays 20 plus year treasury index. You can see down about a half a percent on slightly higher long-term interest rates. Still, the reality is we're hovering at about three and a half percent on the US 10 year, which from a historic standards is not too high, not too low. So moving on, let's take a look at economic data. Most important economic data last week, of course, being the inflation data. We're gonna to get to that uh, and the ongoing discussion about the debt ceiling, the debt limit here uh, in the United States. Small business optimism for April fell uh, to 89. That was uh, the lowest level in 10 years. So it's pretty easy to say, we're not worried about inflation right now. We're worried about the recession that I think we're probably in or entering. I've been saying for a couple of months, I think in, I think we probably started in March um, if not March, I'm, I'm pretty close. So when you have a recessionary environment, it's very disinflationary or deflationary. But yet, because of the data and the lags associated with data, a lot of the conversation we're still having and focusing on uh, with the media, the news media, the financial news media centers around inflation. But the reality is the lowest level of small business optimism in a decade is likely, more likely than not, to correlate eventually with a declared recession. Future business conditions and sales expectations fell. Plans for capital spending fell. That's disinflationary. But surprisingly, job openings and plans to hire rose, which is very contradictory, a bit of an enigma there. Uh, and respondents say they still have trouble finding qualified workers. Moving on to inflation data, the CPI for the month of April rose four tenths of a percent, right in, long, right in line with estimates, is now up 4.9% on a year-over-year uh, -year basis, year-over-year -year basis, okay, fine. Um, that's the blue line. Then you look at the core, which is the red line, went up slower, goes down slower because it excludes two volatile pieces, food and energy. But here we got four tenths and up 5.5. So obviously inflation numbers coming down, year over year comparisons of course are easier, uh, but that is what we would expect with the restrictive Fed monetary policy. However, 
there's still an inflationary component, and that is we have a very expansive, still, fiscal policy. Anytime you have a fiscal policy which allows you to spend more than you take in, you have to borrow money and you spend it, that's an inflationary pressure on the economy. But the debt ceiling debate is helping to sort of bring in some of that, that pressure. I'll show you that shortly. But first, producer prices, PPI, April PPI, much better than expected, two-tenths versus three-tenths its expectation. It had fallen four-tenths of a percent in March, and now 2.3% year over year. That's PPI or producer prices. Okay, then you take the core, less volatile up, less volatile down, also up 2%. Year over year is 3.2, better than expected, which was 3.3. So to look, you know, we like to look at, well, this is where it's going. It's pretty clearly we had a big spike. Now we're in a downtrend. That's great. Everybody should be happy about that. The Fed should recognize that their work raising interest rates and running off the Fed's balance sheet is having a positive impact. But we also look to the markets. How are break-evens trading in the market? That's the break-even inflation rate as measured by tip shields. Uh, and you take a look at this, and I have put three on the chart here. Let's start with the 10-year number. Still stubbornly high, still expecting 3.6% roughly inflation for 10 years. The Fed would really like to see this number heading lower. But on a positive front, you can see that the two-year break-even, the sort of, what is this amber-colored line here, now below 2%. So the market is betting on and pricing sub-2% inflation for the next two years. Over five years, it's right at the 2% line, 2.13%. So this is all moving in the right direction with the exception of the 10-year, and we'll probably see that start to come down soon as well. Okay, uh, also on the disinflationary front, import and export prices both continue to grind lower, even though they gained 0.4%, uh, excuse me, lower rate. They gained four-tenths of a percent uh, uh, import prices did in the month of April due to higher energy prices, export prices up a modest two-tenths of a percent. And on a year-over-year -year basis, import prices down 4.8, exports down 5.9. Okay, moving along here to weekly jobless claims. Don't underestimate what's happening here. You see this? Initial jobless claims are rising. They had been bumping along 200,000. It was almost boring to talk about with you for a very long period of time. It was great. The job market's been very strong. All these kids coming out of college, finding employment, people able to quit, people able to demand work from home and puppies in the office and all those great things. But weekly jobless claims now are on the rise. They rose to 264,000 last week. That was well above economists' expectations of 245. And that is a spike above its four-week moving average, which means it's going to start pulling that four-week moving average higher. When you get to 300, which we're getting close, that's when you don't have a robust, ebullient, hot, strong labor market. You have a negative labor market. Well above 300, and you're certainly looking at recession. Now, I, I've said over and over, I think we're in a mild recession. There won't be big job losses. Fed has plenty of tools at its disposal. They could stop hiking. They could cut rates, et cetera. Uh, but they're waiting for those inflation readings to, to come down to do that. Consumer sentiment in the University of Michigan continues to be very poor and to be far worse than expected. 
Consumer sentiment fell from 63.5 to 57.7, well below the expectations. Current conditions continue to fall and people's expectations are falling even faster. That's a very, very low reading for uh, expectations. Why? Well, we're still dealing with the lingering effects of inflation. We're still paying a lot for gasoline, even though maybe it's stopped going up. It's not like it's gone down, right? Food prices may have stopped going up, but they haven't really come down. Most of us haven't lost jobs. There haven't been significant job losses yet in the economy. Uh, but the debate today really is about on this debt limit and this default and this potential for a default and what it means to uh, the country, what it means to consumers, what it means to investors. Given the business that I'm in, I've had a lot of phone calls in the last week and emails about whether or not the U.S. will default on its debt. The short answer is absolutely not. It will not happen. It cannot happen. And it won't happen. It'll never happen. It won't happen because the, the effects would be catastrophic to the financial markets globally. Um, and, and that's just not the way things work. It doesn't mean people won't suggest that it will happen. They won't, it means they won't, doesn't mean that they won't threaten to make it happen. But this is part of the checks and balances of the system we have. This is part of the negotiation process we have between the two political parties. Uh, and, and it is, and we're lucky to have it all. And I'll explain. First of all, U.S. government spending is either mandatory, which is not subject to the annual budget and appropriations vote of the Congress, and it's about two-thirds of expenditures. These are commitments that have been made by prior Congresses and signed by prior presidents, things like Social Security, things like Medicare. Then you get into what's the discretionary spending. This is voted on in the annual appropriations process by the Congress and signed ultimately by the president. So, and then within that, after that budget's passed throughout the year, there can be, and there often is or are, supplemental appropriations, which were voted on for emergencies or other spending things that might take place. Defense spending is about half of the discretionary budget. One of the reasons we have a great economy and great financial markets and capital trusts the United States is because we have such high levels of discretionary defense spending, which protect our markets and our economy. And we pay taxes to get that. Government spending in the U.S. runs currently around 25% of GDP. Historically, the debate really between the two parties, at least in our lifetimes, has been about what is the appropriate level of government spending as a percentage of GDP. On the right, the Republican Party tends to prefer it to be around 20% of GDP. On the left, the Democratic Party prefers it to be 25, 26, 27% of GDP. The problem with that is we don't take in enough revenue in the form of taxes to meet the level of spending we want. And so when we do that, we run a deficit. And deficits as a percentage of GDP, we started getting worried in the 80s when we got to 5%. We got down there a couple of times. Then in the late 90s, early 2000s, we actually ran a budget surplus in this country. Since then, we've run very consistent, persistent budget deficits. And these budget deficits have become a larger and larger percentage of GDP. In the global financial crisis of 2008, massive fiscal expending expenditures were enacted. Money was borrowed via the bond market to spend. But the amount that we did in COVID, the COVID crisis, was far in excess of that of the financial crisis of 2008. 
I believe very strongly that it was unnecessary. It wasn't needed. It was inappropriate, but it was probably well-intended. Now that level of debt has accumulated very significantly. And because of inflation, interest rates have gone up and the cost of servicing that debt has gotten excessive. And of course, we have still large amounts of both discretionary and non-discretionary spending. So we have to borrow money. The federal government has to borrow money. They issue bills, notes, and bonds to do that. Every time the federal government borrows money, they increase the public debt outstanding. How, where does the money come from with the debt? It comes from investors like you, like me. It also comes from foreign countries who run a trade surplus with the United States. This is the benefit that the United States possesses by being the world's reserve currency. After winning World War II, a system was set up whereby all of the allied, the major trading partner uh, countries had their currency pegged to the US dollar. The US dollar was convertible into gold. In the 1970s, when US spending exploded because of the Vietnam War, the US went off of the gold standard. We experienced a high period of inflation but then things settled down and the US currency became the currency of fiat. It just exists and it's okay because it is. And there's, there's nothing backing it per se, other than the full faith and credit, the strength of our economy, the strength of our federal government, our military, our laws, our courts, the value of production of our economy. But Congress puts a limit on the US treasury. And that limit, as you can see, is currently met at about $31.5 trillion, roughly. So since January, the federal debt outstanding has stopped growing. I kind of see that as a good thing. I feel that the services have been there, the TSA has worked, the military is working, et cetera. But during this period, since January, the federal government has been scrapping and searching and clawing for, for pockets and pools of money. Uh, to meet things. And now they're running us. They spend it. They're starting to run out of money. So the two parties are debating. And that's a good thing. This is how our country works. We have two major political parties. Currently, the Democratic Party has the Senate. Democratic Party has the White House. Uh, and the Republican Party has uh, the House of Representatives. Now, when you turn on the news, because news now is all political, you're either going to get the Democratic news or you're going to get the Republican news. And as such, it becomes more propaganda than news. So let's try to take a look at this. I apologize to both parties uh, in advance. If I mischaracterized any way, I'm trying to summarize here briefly the two situations, or the two positions on the situation. Well, let's start on the left with the Democrats. The Democratic Party wants to prioritize current spending needs, discretionary spending needs in particular, over maintaining savings, dry port, party powder, the ability to react uh, to um, you know, a recession or a war. Um, they have a belief in something called modern monetary theory. The position of monetary, modern monetary theory is that the US debt load is okay and it can be expanded and it can be expanded significantly uh, without harming the value of the world's reserve currency. Uh, and without causing inflation and without causing higher interest rates. That is a belief. There are economists within the party, obviously, that support that belief. 
They believe that doing so, spending more, running bigger deficits, borrowing more because of our status as a reserve currency does not jeopardize our status as a reserve currency. And they say, even if we get a little bit higher inflation, instead of maybe a 2% target, we could have a three or a 4% target, they're okay. They're okay with that because inflation is a form of taxation and they are okay with higher taxes. Party would prefer to raise taxes to fund valuable government spending, social spending, and they believe that the proper size of government within our capitalist, democratic capitalist economy should be 30 to 35% of GDP. Now on the other side, the Republicans are concerned that the current debt levels are already dangerous to the sustainability of the Republic, to the nature of our operations. They need and want more dry powder in the case of a 2008 global financial crisis, a war, a pandemic. They prefer to have more ability to borrow for an emergency than to just borrow for spending. They're very concerned about the US maintaining its position as the world's reserve currency. China would very much prefer to be the world's reserve currency. The Eurozone, the European Union would love to have the ability that we have. We're the only country in the world which has this ability to sort of um, continue to borrow and that live beyond its means. It's because of the value of our currency and the, the view on the Republican side is that we can, we can abuse that privilege to the point where we lose the privilege. They see inflation as a confiscatory tax, particularly burdensome to workers and labor. If you own homes and real estate and land and gold, well, the value of those things go up with inflation and you're partially, if not fully insulated from the effects of inflation. Your wages might go up too. They would prefer to contain spending, to avoid tax increases because they see tax increases as negative for economic advancement, negative for employment, et cetera. And they believe that government should be about 20 to 22% of GDP. So this is the situation we're in. And of course, what you'll have, of course, is depending on which party you're in, they'll get on their preferred news and make it sound like it's A, the other side's fault, and B, it's going to be catastrophic. Well, I don't think it's either side's fault. It's just a reality of two different groups with two different views trying to negotiate and get to a common or a middle ground, both trying to use whatever leverage they have to further their own objectives. So when the government does shut down, and it's happened before, happened in 80, 81, 84, and 86, they were all for just a day, three days in 1990, five days in 95. Then at the end of 95, 96, we had a 21-day shutdown, 16 days in 13, three in 18, and 35 days in 2018, 19. Yet the economy worked, the markets were open, airplanes flew, mail was delivered, everything was fine. Federal hospitals remain open, et cetera. But about half of federal employees, a large number of federal employees were furloughed during that period. What will not happen is the government will not prioritize, let's say the Department of Education over interest science debt. Now, I just don't see that as being possible. So if an interest payment is due on a treasury security, it will be paid. It doesn't prevent the government from, from uh, issuing new securities to maintain the level of debt as other securities mature. The bond matures this Friday, well, that reduces the debt. And then of course they can borrow again. 
So I don't think it's catastrophic. I do remember very well the shutdowns of 95, 96, 18, and 19. And in the end, when both sides get a little bit of what they want, uh, the sustainability of the Republic from a fiscal perspective uh, will come out stronger. Could there be a deal announced this week? Yes. Uh, should investors do anything? I don't think so, because once a deal is announced, I expect the market to rally strongly. But that deal may not be this week. It may be in three weeks. We may get a government shutdown. So as investors, we do what we always do, which is made a very, maintain a very long-term perspective. Okay, this week, plenty of economic data, New York State manufacturing, retail sales, industrial production, capacity utilization, housing, housing starts, permit, weekly jobless claims. You see how that's inching higher. Um, Philly Fed, negative, existing home sales, and then nothing on Friday. Don't forget, you can follow me here if you're looking at the slides, graphs, and charts, or tell your smart device to play the podcast, Slaying Bulls and Bears from Herb Morgan. Thanks, everybody. Be back to you again in one week.